The uh, <clears throat> Pastor Willie asked me to speak this morning on a topic that uh, start off with a confession. This is uh, kind of a hard topic for me because it's about something I'm not very good at. Um, it's about sharing your faith or witnessing. But uh, you know what Martin Luther said about sharing the gospel? He said, it's like one beggar telling another beggar where to get the bread. So uh, if you could listen to this beggar, <laughs> uh, I'd like to start off asking you a question. How many of you in your childhood went through some type of confirmation or catechism classes? Looks like maybe about 20% of us. Um, I had that experience, and my church, I uh, grew up in the Lutheran church, uh, around age 12 to 14, we went to what we call confirmation classes. And uh, before you could take communion, you had to go through these classes. We met every, for two years, every Sunday, except for, can you join me over there? Okay. We met for <clears throat> every Sunday, except during the summer. So it was pretty thorough. And the first year, we focused more, if I remember right, on the Old Testament and including the law. And what is the thing that summarizes the law? It's the Ten Commandments. How many of you think you could recite the Ten Commandments? We got about three, four. A couple of years ago, I probably could not either, and I had to go back and relearn what I had learned in confirmation class. Uh, now, I had a problem with memorizing stuff. I always have. But my problem with the Ten Commandments was not so much memorizing them, was that I knew I didn't keep them. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> that made me aware that I was in trouble with God. And... Uh, well, that was the focus. Now, how many, uh, who, can, who could name all Ten Commandments? Who wants to, who wants to try that? Okay. Uh, my, my little cousin Chuck Griever back there, he can do it. Uh, okay, first one, no other gods before me. Okay, he's the, he's the most important thing. Second, no graven image, which means... Not creating a God to suit yourself. The third is not taking God's name in vain. Well, we think of that as cursing, right? But suppose somebody says, well, God told me to do such and such. I think sometimes that can be taking God's name in vain, too, because we're telling somebody that God's saying something he's not saying. Fourth, and remember the Sabbath day. One day a week, we should be focusing on the Lord. Um, should be focusing on them all the time, but particularly that one day. Fifth one, honor father and mother. How many of us always honored our father and mother from the time we were children? <laughs> we're coming to another one that's going to run it out. You shall not kill, literally be, you shall not murder. Je and Jesus said, if, you, uh, if you're angry at your brother without cause... You're guilty of murder in your heart. You shall not commit adultery. 
Jesus said here again, if you look at someone with lust, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. You shall not steal. Uh, you shall not bear false witness. Uh, you shall not covet. It's another word we have for that is envy, wanting something that somebody else has. Did I leave them any out? I think that that got it. Well, this was this was the focus of our first year. Our second year in confirmation class, we focused more on the New Testament and uh, what, what they called the small catechism, and that included Luther's uh, explanation of the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed was sort of an outline that we went through. Excellent material. I remember struggling uh, memorizing Luther's explanation of the second article of the Creed, which is, uh, I believe in Jesus Christ as only Son, our Lord. <clears throat> and it was, it's a wonderful, profound uh, commentary on that. It was good stuff. Uh, one of the things, growing up as Lutherans, <clears throat> we were very focused in on the, the Reformation. And one of the battle cries of the Reformation was, the just shall live by faith. And, uh, you know, we were not going to be living based, we saw that our salvation was not based on the good works that we could do. And uh, so I memorized it. I knew that. I knew that we were, the, that the just shall live by faith. I learned that phrase, <clears throat> that we find that based, for instance, Romans 117, where Paul talks about that. Paul is actually quoting Habakkuk, who, and Luther quoted Paul. Well, I knew the phrase, but that we shall live, the just shall live by faith. And I believe that we're saved by faith and not by works. But I had a problem. My understanding as a teenager of what faith was, was that faith was a feeling of reverence toward God. Now, should we have a feeling of reverence towards God? Sure. But is that faith? That's not the same thing as faith. But I had... But since I thought that was what faith was, I hoped that before I died, I'd had just a few minutes of warning. <clears throat> and that way I could get that feeling of reverence towards God when I died and I wouldn't go to hell. How's that for profound theology? <laughs> um, well, it wasn't until I was in college. And on, I remember the date, November the 11th, 1961, I met, I met a man who was in the staff of Campus Crusade, and he shared with me something called the Four Spiritual Laws. Anybody heard of the Four Spiritual Laws? Some of you have. Well, it's, it's God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Law two, man is sinful and separated from God, therefore he can't know God's love and plan for his life. The third law is Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of our sins so that we can know God's love and plan for our life. And the fourth is we must receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, this fellow Dave said, Lee, have you ever received Christ? And I thought back to your confirmation. I thought, well, yeah, I think that's something we did. <laughs> uh, I said, I think so, but I'm not sure. So he said, well, Lee, if you're not sure... I don't think that God would be offended if you ask him in again. And I said, well, that makes sense. So I prayed silently <clears throat> based on Revelation 3.20 where Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and have fellowship with him and he with me. And uh, 
When I finished praying, Dave said, well, Lee, did you ask Christ to come in? I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, did he come in? Well, I didn't have any feeling of reverence. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. Uh, no, no tingles up my spine or anything like that. <clears throat> so Dave said, well, did you ask Christ to come in? I said, yes. Well, what did Christ say? He says, if you open the door, I will come into him <clears throat> and have fellowship with him. Did you invite Christ to come in? I said, yes. Did he come in? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so Dave was very patient with me. He went back through this two, three times, and he said, well, did Christ say he would come in? I said, yes, he did. If you invite him. He said, did you invite him? I said, yes, I did. Then he said, would Jesus Christ tell a lie? And it was like, oh, no, I'm not ready to call Jesus Christ a liar. And so I knew with confidence for the first time in my life that Christ was in my life, that I was forgiven, not based on a feeling that I had, but based on the choice that Jesus Christ is faithful to what he said. That either he was a liar or he would do what he said. And I was not ready to call him a liar. And so for the first time in my life, I experienced what it meant to have assurance of my salvation. Now this was new to me. I used to get irritated with people who would say, well, I know I'm going to heaven. Have you ever heard somebody say that? <clears throat> I know I'm going to heaven. And it used to bug me. I think, well, how do they know they're good enough that they're going to heaven? Well, now I could say and know why I could say I know I'm going to heaven. Well, one of the first things that came to me in my discipleship after I came to Assurance uh, was a couple of questions that were asked me. One, what's the greatest thing that's ever happened in your life? And I think anyone who has come to the point where they know that they have received the Lord, they know they have forgiveness, they know that they're born again, anyone who's had that experience would say, the greatest thing that's happened in my life is to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Well, the next question is, then what's the greatest thing you can do for someone else? Well, the logical response is, we'll help that person to have that same discovery. And so I learned very quickly that it's the responsibility and the calling of every believer to be a witness. And there are many verses that, that confirm that. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, and you will be my, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. Um, Mark 16:15 says, "Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation." Second Corinthians 5:11. Therefore, Paul writes, "Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men." First uh, Peter 3:15 says, "Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you." A couple of more verses, not on the on your handout, is Second um, Corinthians 5:14, where Paul says, "The love of Christ compels me." to share the gospel. Or Romans 1.14 says, For I am debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians. He saw that he owed everything to Christ, and he passed that obligation, he said, on to other people. Well, I graduated. When I graduated from college, I was convinced that God had called me to be on the staff of Campus Crusade. 
<clears throat> and they had a lot of confidence in me that my first year uh, they sent me to be the only staff member in Connecticut and my two main campuses were University of Connecticut and Yale. <clears throat> well, I am a certified introvert. I have had that verified. <laughs> I, look, I've had that verified by something called the Myers-Briggs Personality Inventory, which I've taken three times in three different groups. And at every time I've taken that, I'm always the most introverted person in the whole group. So uh, neither by my temperament nor by my gifting am I an evangelist. And yet <clears throat> I felt that God had called me to this work of evangelism with Campus Crusade. And um, people were paying support, paying money to support me to be full-time as an evangelist on campus. And I felt like this was what God wanted me to do. <clears throat> well, I did not do a very good job. In fact, I did a terrible job. Every week we had a report to send in, and I always fell way short of the standards, of the goals. And so I began to feel more and more a sense of failure, more and more a sense of guilt. <clears throat> and what I tried to do is that I thought, well, if I can make myself feel bad enough, I'll do better. I'll shape up. And so I really got into self-condemnation. And I found how effective it was. <clears throat> it doesn't work. <laughs> I didn't become a... a, a wild evangelist. I didn't become a, a greater witness. In fact, I, I didn't even want to go on campus. It got so bad, I felt so much discouragement and depression that I, I can remember sitting in the, in the car of the University of Connecticut parking lot, looking out over the campus, and for the first time since I came to the Lord, thinking, I think I'm just going to bag all of this. <clears throat> it was just too much of a sense of failure. And what happened when I really began to think, well, maybe I'll do that, I had a sense of being in front of a big bottomless pit. <laughs> and it was like, there's nowhere else to go. And later on, I came across the verse that, that Peter said when Jesus had spoken to the crowd and said, you've got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And most of the disciples and followers went away and he turned to the disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? And that's when Peter said, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And as depressed as I was, I still had the consciousness, there's nowhere else to go. So I was kind of stuck. <laughs> um, but fortunately, shortly after that, I came under some very good teaching that helped me to understand on a much deeper level the grace of God. And uh, what this did was that I came out from uh, this self-imposed condemnation. One of the key verses that I remember was Romans 8.1. For there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So here I was. I had been condemning myself trying to get myself to shape up. I found out, first of all, it didn't feel good. Secondly, it didn't work. And thirdly, I was disagreeing with God. <laughs> I ran out of reasons to do it. <laughs> and uh, in Romans six fourteen, Paul says, "You are no longer, you're not under law, but you're under grace." And so there's great liberation for me from this kind of 
sense of failure and condemnation I had because of my failures as a witness. But there were a couple of things that came along with that, uh, with my understanding of grace. that came along with a little bit of uh, baggage. Part of that baggage was that I, <clears throat> I sort of rejected organized Christianity and I had a kind of rejected the idea of authority. <clears throat> now, uh, that's when we moved to Lynchburg in 1970. That's sort of where I was at. And uh, I met with some other rebels like me for a while, and we we decided we're going to have uh, <clears throat> we're just going to have a church where we don't have any leaders, and we don't have any organization, and we don't have any buildings. We'll just get together and let the Holy Spirit lead us however He wants to. We're just going to be free, and that's what I call now. We're going to have the Let It Happen Church. Well, I found out something about the Let It Happen Church. The Let It Happen Church doesn't happen. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, I had to come into another area of repentance. I came under, fortunately, on some other really good teaching that let me begin to look at some of the scriptures that I had ignored before. Things like uh, 1 Peter 5.5, You younger men, be subject to your elders. Or Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them. And so I began to appreciate the fact that God does have order, has structure. There's authority. There's protection in that. There's covering in that. And we and, and we learned the hard way that we needed some covering that we did not have. So I had to repent of some of the, uh, these bad attitudes that I had from coming out from being under the law, but still. My attitude toward the law was not like what I found in places like Psalm 119.47, which says, And I delight in thy commandments, which I love. And I thought, well, I knew what the law used in the wrong way would do to me. But I had not come to the point where I could say, I delight in your commandments, which I love. Um, So the law, but I... Yet I knew that the law was good. I had seen some people, this was back in like uh, around 1970, the Jesus freak movement, you know, and you had people doing all kinds of things. Uh, Some of y'all just, for some of you, that's history. You've never even known that. But some of us, it was current events, wasn't it? (laughs) And uh, that I knew that they were doing all kinds of wild stuff because they said they were free. Well, I knew that was not right. Paul said the the law is holy and righteous and good. But, okay, what is the law good for? I guess my understanding to answer that question at that time was, well, I know that the law is an expression of God's will. It's an expression of God's character. And so if if you love somebody... uh, Think about Christmas time. You love somebody, you want to think, what's, what's... the best present I can get that person. You want to know what their will is if you want to to please somebody that you love. And so that part of what the law is good for, it lets me know how I can please God. If I'm loving him because he first loved me, then that'll be my motivation. We see that in in 1 John 4.19. He says, we love God because he first loved us. And so... If I'm responding to his love, I'm going to love him, and I want to 
to obey his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, do what I command you to do. So that's part of the answer to that. But the law also has another purpose in Scripture that's really clearly taught in the Scripture, and that is that the law is like a mirror. If you look in the mirror, what do you see? You see yourself. And if I've got dirt on my face, I look in the mirror, I can see it, but I can't see it otherwise. So the law is a mirror to show us the true condition of our heart. Now, let's say somebody goes in for some uh, a checkup, physical checkup. And they get a bunch of tests, blood tests. They come back to see the doctor. And the doctor sees that this person has got a serious, deadly disease. <clears throat> but the person didn't, was not aware of that. What is a good doctor going to do? A good doctor is going to do everything he can to let that person understand the seriousness of their disease. Why? To make the person feel bad? No, so that that person then will be eager and ready to receive the, the cure that's available for that disease. And Paul taught, he said that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Now Paul wrote in much of the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and in all through all of his epistles, Paul is very strong against legalism. The whole book of the main theme of the book of Galatians is that. He says we're not under the law. And he, um, he actually kind of cursed those who perverted the gospel, saying that we could, had to earn our salvation. So Paul was by no means a legalist, and yet he, had, he held the law in very high esteem. And he said, this is the purpose of the law. And it's only been in the last couple of years that this part has started to come into focus for me very well. A lot of that has come through a ministry called The Way of the Master, and there's a, a New Zealand evangelist called uh, Ray Comfort. Any of you heard of Ray Comfort? This material is excellent. This is sort of like a new eye-opener for me, and it's been very helpful. And uh, so we say, well, Paul says that the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. But I guess the question is, okay, but is it appropriate then to use the law for evangelism and witnessing? Uh, do we see that example of that in the scriptures? Well, question, did Jesus use the law to evangelize? <clears throat> you know, for a long time I'd read the Gospels and I would see the way Jesus would speak to people and I would feel a little uncomfortable. I think, well, why doesn't he use approach more like the four spiritual laws? <laughs> uh, didn't Jesus understand what he's supposed to do? <laughs> uh, well, he did use the law a lot. The example is the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount, he made the law even harder to the people than they thought it was. You know, as I mentioned, he says, if you're angry with a brother without cause, you're guilty of murder. If you look at someone with lust, you're, you're guilty of adultery. He made the law, the standards, really high. Uh, there was... Uh, Back in England, or, or some decades ago, someone was saying, 
Christianity, the value of Christianity is that it's given us much higher moral standards than the world had before. And C.S. Lewis replied to that by saying, well, if Christianity did nothing but give us higher moral standards, it's useless to us because we couldn't even keep the old low standards. <laughs> and, uh, and that's true. Jesus made the law harder so that people would really see their true condition. He also used the law with the rich young ruler. He said, <clears throat> he said what must I do to have eternal life? And he says, keep the commandments. Well, why didn't he say, well, pray to receive me? <laughs> he said, keep the commandments because this young ruler needed to see the true condition of his heart. He said, well, I've done this, I've done that. And he said, well, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And what was his response? He said he went away sad because he, it revealed that he had violated, he had violated the first commandment. That God was to be first. No other gods before him, and his money was his God. Jesus used the law with the woman at the well. He, uh, he said, give me a drink. And then he says, he says, I need to go to my husband. He says, well, the, the, he, or she says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. And he revealed the fact that she was living in adultery. He used the law to make her aware of the fact that she needed forgiveness. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. You're the rich man, and it's not a, it's probably it's not related as a parable. It's, a, it's an actual story. Here, Lazarus was the poor man sitting at the at the door of this rich man who ignored him, and didn't take care of him, and so Jesus. This is an illustration of that the rich man. Uh, was not loving his neighbor as himself. He was violating the law. Well, how about the apostles? We have a number of examples here. One of the uh, primary examples is what happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter, who had uh, 50 days before that, or 40 days before that, had uh, denied the Lord, now he got out with boldness and he preached. Well, what was the topic of his sermon? Most of it was relating the history of Israel and, and applying the law. And he said, you are guilty of murder. You've even murdered your own Messiah. Well, what was the reaction? Did they stone him? The reaction was that they were cut to the heart and 5,000 believed. He used the law to evangelize. Uh, the Apostle Paul as much as he, he fought against legalism, he still used the law when he was uh, giving his defense before the governor, Felix. He went through the law, and Felix got nervous, said, we'll talk about this later, because he came under conviction. So, think about this. Does using the law in witness, does this sound like what we hear very often on, uh, on the radio from, from preachers? It's much more often, you know, what can you get out of God? <laughs> what can God do for you? Well, God can do wonderful things for us. But I think we're in danger there of making God our errand boy. We're in this thing that we are accountable to a holy God. We're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's God's holiness that, that gets us, that, that makes our trouble. <laughs> because he's holy and we're not. And unless we recognize that, 
then we're going to be in a fog. Well, this seems this is for me this idea of using the law and witnessing and sharing my faith is very different from what I was used to. Uh, but you can read the testimonies of of the heroes of faith down through the years, not only in the in the scriptures, but men like Saint Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Billy Graham. Willie Taylor, Sam Dulce, John Dadio. <laughs> uh, these great men of faith have all said that we need the law as an important part of our witness. And I'd like to read a couple of things here. Bill Bright, who wrote the Four Spiritual Laws, <clears throat> and I thank God for him because this is how I came to assurance of salvation. He wrote these in 1956. And uh, toward the end of his life, he wrote a book called Written by the Hand of God. And I'd like to quote this. this is from uh, the book, The Way of the Master. Also near the end of his life, he revealed his understanding of the purpose of God's law. Look at these quotes from his book called Written by the Hand of God, 2001. This is Bill Bright. The Ten Commandments are sometimes called the Decalogue. They have God as their author, holiness as their theme, and the exposure of ungodly hearts as their purpose. Consider the powerful reality of ten statements carved in stone 5,000 years old and still cutting hearts to the quick. They go where no glib tongue nor guileful technology can travel to show us all how desperately wicked we are. Just read through the Ten Commandments, and without a moment's hesitation, you will concede you have failed to live up to God's perfect standards. When I think about my failure to live according to God's perfect law, I am driven to the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and His incredible work of salvation on my behalf. I am reminded of my own sinfulness And what a worm I am in the sight of a holy and just God. Without mercy, the mercy of God poured out at Calvary, we would be the ones suffering the full penalty of our sins, a penalty brought about by our failure to comply with God's holy standards. When I see my reflection in the holy law of God, I see a picture of a man in need of grace. This is Bill Bright. He wrote the four spiritual laws, and one of the strong advocacies of the four spiritual laws is starting, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It starts off so positive, and it is positive, but I think there's a big difference. I know there's a big difference now in the effect that that has on the typical American compared to what it did 50 years ago. Um, Paul wrote, the word of the cross or the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Why do you think to so many people the gospel is foolishness today? Could it be that our current culture has done so much to push away or to shun God's law that now the law is not able to shine the light 
but our consciences. Think about the policy. The Bible was pushed out of public schools. The Ten Commandments, which are inscribed all over the Supreme Court building, have been banned from other courthouses. Um, and think about the culture we're in now compared to what it was in the 1950s. Back then, we read the Bible in school. We, in my public school, we recited the 23rd Psalm. We said the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we had Bible reading in public school. And uh, the TV shows uh, reinforced traditional morality. What kind of morality do TV shows reinforce now? <laughs> the immorality to a large extent. <clears throat> so what do we do about that besides just feel bad? <laughs> I mean, we know that a lot of this bad news. Um, I would say I think that it would be safe to say that all, most of us or all of us who have received Christ's forgiveness, we know we should be witnesses. Uh, we really do care about our lost uh, family and our lost friends. But still, most of us do very little witnessing with our mouth about that. On the other hand, I would say that if you don't have any concern about the salvation of others, then to be honest, I would have to be concerned about your salvation. But for believers who do care about other people's souls, why is it that we don't witness as much as we should? Or maybe not at all. Talk to me. What makes witnessing so hard? Talk to me. What are reasons? Pardon? Fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. Fear yeah. of Fear of Afraid. Afraid. And somebody might ask questions you don't know how to answer. I might blow it. Uh, I don't know how to get the subject into the subject. I mean, there are lots of things. What, what are you going to say, bud? Somebody else calling. Yeah, <laughs> not my gift. <laughs> we're not all called to be evangelists. We're all called to be what? A witness. A witness is basically telling about what you've experienced, what you've seen. And uh, well, what I like to do is to share a biblical approach that an extreme introvert, introvert like me uh, has found works well. And I have a long way to go, but this is helping me a lot. Uh, this is an approach that bypasses intellectual arguments and speaks directly to the conscience. And... I think that's one of the great beauties of this, uh, which would be good even if it, uh, we didn't have the full authority of the Scripture behind it. It makes so much sense. And I've seen that it's worked for me. And I'd like to get Sam Dulce to come up here. And uh, we're going to do a little role playing. And... Uh, This is, there is something that, I think we're going to give these out today or, or not. Really. This, is, this is one of the witnessing tools that the uh, way the master has. And 
Can you read it? <laughs> we need to get need to get Sam's mic on. Well, what it is, the way the message they have a machine that will. You know how you put a penny on the railroad track and it flattens it out? Well, this machine will flatten it out, but it puts in, engraves in it the all Ten Commandments on a penny. And I don't know how many of these given, I've given out. Somewhere between one and two hundred of them, I guess. And uh, I've only one time had somebody who said they didn't want it. I've had twice I've had people say they already had one. Yes. And I think uh, maybe one other time I had a person who just kind of looked at it and says, oh, but 99% of the time, 97% of the time, people will say, oh, well, thank you. They're really glad to get it. And, and about oh, a dozen times people say, I'll use it as a good luck charm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this would be, uh, this would be an example of, of one way to use this. And uh, let's say... And this is what I do very often if I uh, uh, buy something at the store and there's not somebody else waiting in line, so there's a little chance to talk. And I say, well, uh, hey, Sam, did you get one of these yet? No. What is, what is this? Well, can you read it? How, how good is your eyesight? No, you got to be real good to see this. <laughs> well, it's, it's all Ten Commandments pressed into a penny. Can I use this as a good luck charm? <laughs> well, let me tell you, I used to not like the Ten Commandments. Because they just showed me how I'm in trouble with God. Oh, oh. Let me ask you, Sam, do you think you keep the Ten Commandments? Ah, uh, no. No. I don't. You know, can I verify that with a couple of questions? Go ahead, shoot. I like this. Most people will say, yeah, I keep them pretty well. Uh, have you ever told a lie? Yes. What does that make you? person who told a lie. Yeah, okay. <laughs> if, I, if I told you a lie, what would you call me? You're a liar. Yeah, You're okay. a liar. So what does that I'm make a, you? I'm a liar. Okay, have you ever stolen anything? Ah, uh, something maybe you, small. little thing, doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. yeah I've stolen something. If you stole something, what does that make you? I, I guess a thief. It's a thief. All right. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Yes. <laughs> Jesus said if you look at someone with lust, you're guilty of adultery. Uh, have you ever used God's name in vain? Have you ever used God's word as a cuss word? Yes, I know I have. Somewhere in the past, I know I have. Uh, taking the, the name of the one who's given you everything that's good and precious to you and use it as a word to discuss. The Bible calls that blasphemy. Now, Sam, you've just told me that you're a lying, adulterous, blasphemous thief. Why? My mother ain't tell me that. That's what you does by your own words. That's what this says. Yeah. That's and the Ten Commandment. Now, if God, that's only four of the Ten Commandments. Now, <laughs> if God were to judge you on the basis of the Ten Commandments, Sam, would you be innocent or guilty? Oh, I would be guilty. Be guilty. Would you go to heaven or hell? I would definitely go to hell. Does that concern you? Oh, that would definitely concern me. Yeah. I don't want to go to hell. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't want you to go to hell. You don't want to go to hell. Right. And God doesn't want you to go to hell either. Do you know what God has done for you so that you don't have to go to hell? No, I don't know. I don't know. Well, he sent his son to die on the cross to take the penalty for your sin. And so at this point, when, when Sam has expressed his awareness of his need, that he's in trouble, 
based on the law. Now he will be ready to receive the gospel and it won't be foolishness to him. Right. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, and <clears throat> the point is, when a person has come to the point where they have, you can see that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit came to, to the Scripture says, to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, does the Holy Spirit convince us of grace? Well, He'll do that too, but our not, grace is going to mean nothing to me unless I, I'm aware of the consequences of my sin, of God's righteousness, and the consequence, consequential judgment that I am under, that I am responsible to holy God. We are in a culture now where this is very different from 50 years ago. Those of us who are old enough to remember then, would you agree with that? Is it really different now? I mean, this is a very self-approving culture that we're in. And, and, we, need, and we need to use the approach the Scripture used to let people be aware of what that need is. Um, so let me review what we've done here. I, it, there are all kinds of icebreakers. The, the way the master, they must have a 50 or 100 very creative different type of witnessing tools. One of, one of them here is this, uh, it's a optical illusion. Which of these cards is bigger? And, you know, it, it's going to look like the pink one's bigger, but then you switch and say, well, now which is bigger? You know, and so, uh, this is one of lots of the ways that Ray Comfort says that you, you, you get somebody's attention, you get their interest, and he talks about, okay, well, this fools the eye. This is the optical illusion. It can fool the eye. And speaking of eyes, if somebody were to offer you a million dollars to do an eye transplant to take your eye, They'd give you a million dollars. It would be a painless operation. They would give you a glass eye that would look just as good, only it would, wouldn't look as good. Uh, would you take a million dollars for one of your eyes? And most people would say no. So well, suppose I gave you $20 million for both of your eyes. Well, no, very few, no sane person would give up their eye for a million dollars. Then he would go say, but you know, Jesus said, the, the eye is called the window of the soul. And Jesus said, your soul is worth so much that you'd be better to pluck your eye out than to lose your soul. And then, uh, going, I mean, there are so many ways like this. And I'm just starting to use these a little bit because I'm a very chicken witness, I'll confess to you. Uh, and uh, it's, it's still not easy, but I'm finding that the people are responding in a much better way in the sense that I feel like I'm getting through to people better than before. Uh, so you can say, do you think you keep, keep the Ten Commandments? Or with another icebreaker, you might say, do you think you're a good person? Well, nine out of ten people will say, yeah, I'm a good person. And so well, may I ask you some questions to verify that? Sure, and most people will say, yeah, okay, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? And so on. 
And then, well, if God were to judge you on that basis, would you be innocent or guilty? I would be guilty. If you're guilty, would you go to heaven or hell? So once a person, you're not, see, this is so different from coming and saying, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. They have, you've asked them questions so that the person has acknowledged it themselves. And I've had, I've done this several times, and I've had some people get real sober, but I have not had anybody even begin to be mad at me for asking them these questions, which is different. Because the way I would typically approach before, I'd, I would take much more of an apologetic approach. Not, not in the sense I'm apologizing, but I'm giving the evidence for faith. So here's the evidence for the, the resurrection of Christ. Here's the evidence for creation. Here's the evidence... Uh, this kind of evidence, or even talking about the conscience as being evidence of God. And what happens is that gets in the realm of the mind, and the scripture says the mind is hostile. The carnal mind is hostile to God. So if, as long as I'm in the realm of the mind, I'm fighting an enemy. But our conscience, even the unsaved person's conscience, conscience is not hostile to God, it's on your side. <laughs> So if we bypass the intellectual arguments and speak to the conscience, you've got the Holy Spirit on your side. <laughs> you've got the conscience inside that person on your side. And, and I've seen this truth that you get work. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're always going to end up praying with a person for salvation. But the person, if they have gotten to the point where they recognize, I'm in trouble with God and I need, I need something, that is a huge step in the right direction. And, there, and, and it, in my experience at this point, I haven't met somebody who I was, had the either opportunity uh, or ready at that point to go ahead and pray to receive Christ. But I expect that that's going to happen. And, but I have seen numerous times where people now become sober. One ex- I was telling Pastor Willie about this a few weeks ago. We just finished building a house up in the mountains, and I hope you'll all come see us, but not all at once. <laughs> uh, and the, uh, they had some guys working doing stucco on the house, <clears throat> uh, the stucco on the outside of the insulation, and they had to come back and do some repairs on it. And there were three guys there, one of them I knew and two that I did not know. And as they were getting ready, they finished the job. I said, have you got one of these yet? There's a the penny. And they said, no, what is this? And the guy said, oh, well, good, that's, that's neat. And I just had two on me. And the third guy said, well, I want one too. So I had to mail him one later. But I gave it to him, and um, I, I'm not sure, I can't remember his name. Let's just say his name was Joe. I said, well, Joe, do you, th- do you think you keep the Ten Commandments? After I explained what it was. And he said, yeah, I think I keep them. Well, the other guy said, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> And uh, I said, well, let me ask you a question. Well, have you ever told a lie? And so on. And, and he said, well, you know, would you be innocent or guilty? And he said, guilty. And the other, guy, and, and the other two were listening very intently. Well, would you go to heaven or hell? Mm-hmm. And then, then the third guy says, uh, when he wants to admit, yeah, I'd go to hell. And the third guy comes and says, well, you know, that's why Jesus Christ came. <laughs> and so they began to witness. The one guy began to witness to the other two. And uh, it's, that's fun stuff, you know. And, 
but I still have to kind of, I've got that little hesitation to get over to even begin to do that. Now, y'all, I, I doubt anybody in this room is as much an introvert as I am. So it would be easier for you than it is for me, I think. Uh, very often what I'll do is if I, if I buy something to store, if I, I know there won't be a lot of chance to talk to somebody, I'll just give them the penny. And there's some other things that Ray Comfort talks about. One is the 101 funniest one-liners. And people love to read humor. And then it goes into a gospel message. Uh, there's another another thing here. It looks like wadded up $50 bill. You drop it on the ground. I, I dropped that on the ground outside of Famous Anthony's one time and to see who would come out. Well, it happened to be somebody. I was in a group that gets together, speak German once a month, and one of the people came out. And they picked it up and started looking at it real close. Um, there, there are all kinds of ways to break the ice. And uh, usually what I'll just say, if I don't have any more opportunity than just say, well, the, you know, this is the Ten Commandments, Preston and Penny. I didn't used to like those because they showed me how I'm in trouble with God. Trying to get to the conscience. Okay. Ooh, I could be in trouble with God. <laughs> Maybe I'm in trouble with God. That's a, that's a totally new idea to many people in our culture. I think that was a very common idea 50 years ago, but it's not so much today. Well, what if you talk to somebody and they don't come to the point where they're convinced there's a conviction of sin? It could well be, because uh, that's the Spirit's job. It's not our job to try to talk somebody into saying, to acknowledging they're a sinner. We ask them questions and see if they're willing to admit it. But the Scripture says, be confident that God's word will not return void. So will, so will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sin it. Um, I just like, I like to read, uh, We've got a few more minutes. I'm going to take all my time, Willie. Can I do that? <laughs> this is a book by C.S. Lewis. Uh, anybody heard of him? <laughs> um, he wrote one of the most inspiring things and convicting things that I've ever read is an essay called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. And this is near the end of it. And he talks about glory and what is glory. Should we want glory for ourselves and when, why it would be appropriate and not appropriate to want glory for ourselves. He says, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the, of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, <clears throat> all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But as immortals, with mortals with whom we joke, work, marry, snub, and exploit, <clears throat> immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This is the, <clears throat> these are the people that God has entrusted us with the gospel to. Jesus said, to whom much is given, what? Much is required. <clears throat> if we've been given eternal life, that's worth more than all the riches of the earth. And so to us, much is required. <clears throat> Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that you help us to consider the way of the Master, which you modeled and which your apostles modeled, <clears throat> that we would consider this in our efforts to introduce our loved ones and others to you. Lord, I pray for the, the confidence <clears throat> that you are in work of the hearts of those around us, that you will bring us closer to being the type of witness that you want us to be. Lord, I thank you that you've promised to continue the work, complete the work that you've begun in us. So I thank you ahead of time, the fruit that will come out of your speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name.